Hi, I'm Mark Woods, um, and I'm back with another Page One podcast, and today we have Andrew Pantazzi um, talking about a story that's going to appear in Sunday's paper um, about Panama Youth Services, um, a Jacksonville group home for teenagers facing juvenile charges, and it was shut down in October after years of local reporting um, that the group home to, D- to DCF and the D- Department of Juvenile Justice. Um, so I guess, Andrew, maybe, you know, with these page one podcasts, we kind of try and give people the story behind the story. So maybe you can explain before we get into what's in the story, how this, what led you to telling it. And yeah, what- so this story actually began um, a couple of years ago with one of our former colleagues, Tessa Duvall, who wrote about juvenile justice and children's issues. She was hearing a lot about this group home repeatedly from advocates. Um, there were issues happening there. There was a sexual assault that she wrote about. Um, years before that, there had been a murder. Um, and a lot of child advocates, um, especially in the DJJ, Department of Juvenile Justice world, kept telling her that there were problems here. Um, our colleague um, began investigating, and then she got another job offer, and she left for Louisville. Um, and I was close to Tessa, and I knew this was a story that was important. And so I volunteered to continue the story, to continue reporting on it after she left. Um, and she had filed a number of records requests last year. We still haven't gotten those records. Um, we've gotten some of them, but not all of them. Um, just today, I was emailing again with DCF about uh, a very basic, you know, only a few page record that we've been trying to get now for more than a year. And um, the Department of Children and Families um, are notorious for. Uh, how long it takes to get records from them and how expensive it is. So we began looking into this group home. Um, the group two home, years ago, like that long. Yeah. Um, the first stories were two years ago, and then a year ago is when we decided to do a deeper look at the problems here. So the group home is called uh, Panama Youth Services, and the way the system is set up for people who are not familiar with foster care in Florida. Um, you have the Department of Children and Families. That's your state-level department. It was created in the 90s um, uh, to deal primarily with foster care issues. Under it, it contracts with agencies called lead agencies in different parts of the state. In Jacksonville, we have Family Support Services. So they're a contractor of DCF. And then under Family Support Services, they contract again with subcontractors. This group home was one of those subcontractors. Hmm. Their job was to provide a place for children who were uh, dual involved. Uh, That is children who were both going through the Department of Juvenile Justice, they were accused of some form of crime, um, as well as they were in the foster care system, Hmm. would go to this group home. The group home started with 19 children Um, 19 beds um, in 2009, 11 years ago. Um, And they specialized in taking the kids who pretty much everyone else wouldn't take. Foster families wouldn't take. um, Other group homes wouldn't take. And these were the kids who had a lot of challenges. Um, They weren't the only players. These kids also had guardians ad litem. They had juvenile probation officers. They had case management organizations. Um, sometimes they would have a case management organization in another county, such as, say, Polk County, and then they would have a courtesy worker in Jacksonville. Um, and so you had lots of layers of bureaucracy, um, but through all those layers, this one group home kept having problems 
almost immediately. Um, right after they started in 2009, just a few months later, one child was shot um, on the driveway um, at the group mm-hmm. home. Um, and so it just immediately was raising some red flags for people that there were problems at this home. Right, yeah. I, I thought the the detail about how it started was interesting and, and important to, that you talked about. Um, Willie Green, the CEO, what he did before and what led to this. Um, so maybe get into his his background a bit and what led to him starting this. Yeah, so the CEO of the of the group home, the nonprofit Panama, his name's Willie Green. He um, had worked at um, a DJJ facility that similar to this, they took uh, the worst of the worst. They took the kids who had the most difficult circumstances. And at that facility, they had a 12-foot fence. Um, it was very different. Um, people who worked in that facility could... Um, uh, could use arm bar technique, which people might uh, be familiar with from um, uh, UFC and MMA fighting. Um, they, they were able to restrain youth. Mm. Um, but he would see kids go through the program, and then as they were graduating, they had nowhere to go. And so he told me that caseworkers would say the kids were sleeping um, in offices waiting for a place to open up that would take the kids in um, because a lot of their parents wouldn't take them back. And he thought that was wrong. Um, he said their own facility would often take kids after their you know, uh, DJJ term was up. So a kid would be sentenced by a judge, say, be told, go spend nine months in this facility. Nine months would be up and they had nowhere to go. And so they're, they're done serving their time and they would still stay there until a home would come up. Um, and he saw that as wrong, and he right. thought he could do something about it by creating a foster home that would be focused on these types of youth. Yeah, when I read that part of it, it sounds like a a, a hole and a genuine, you know, you're talking about how you, yeah, you described it, <clears throat> the youth that no one else would take in, um, creating a, a need, you know, serving a need. Um, and the program was Ty- Tiger Serious Habitual Offender Program, you're right? right? Yeah, Tiger Shop is what it was known and as. In, and it was one of the lowest performing in the state. Mm-hmm. So so going back to DJJ, um, what Willie Green would say is, um, basically, you can't grade us the same way you grade other people because we take children who nobody else will take. So if you're grading us on the same scale as others, um, we're showing up lowest performing, but there's a reason for that, and it's not our fault. It's the fault of the youth who we're getting. Um, we're getting youth after they've already been traumatized, after they've already um, been acting a certain way. So it's not our fault. I think there's um, there's a little bit to be said about that. That it's true they were taking um, children who were already committing violent crimes, children who had drug problems, children who were traumatized. Um, an alternative take, however, which I also included in the story, is there are other facilities that also do the same thing. Um, in St. Petersburg, there's a group home called Sale Future that Michael Long runs, and they don't take in 19 kids. Right now, they have, I think, five kids, and that's the most they've ever had. Hmm. They are much more intensive, um, much more, um, uh, a lot more resources poured in to each individual youth, um, and he uh, says that you should not treat these children as if it's a foregone conclusion that they're going to do bad things or that they're going to break the rules. And he gave an example, um, a very specific example. He yeah, said, I like that. 
The um, bowling. Uh, yeah. So he said, you get a kid who comes in there who expresses an interest in bowling. Then once a week, you're taking that kid out to the bowling alley. And he described it as you're making deposits into an account. You bring that kid every week. That's a deposit. You buy that kid bowling shoes. That's a deposit. You buy that kid a bowling ball. You you put him in a bowling league. And each time you're telling him, you're the best bowler I've ever seen. I'm amazed. Even if the kid's not good at bowling, you're just amping him up saying like, look at how great you are. Look at how much improvement you're seeing. And over time, that kid starts feeling confident in himself. And that's how you get a kid to go to school. That's how you get a kid to go to counseling. That's how you get a kid to see in themselves the ability to improve. And he said that it's always oddly specific. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it might be a kid who's really interested in Islam. And then you've got him, you know, talking to you about what he's learning in the Quran. And then he's talking to other kids and you're just praising him for this fascination he has in this, you know, very arbitrary thing. And and he said, you've got kids who are gang members. You've got kids who are doing violent things who want to do bowling. And that's what they're interested in. And they feel really proud of this. Like kids who, uh, when you look at them, you would think this is a hardened kid who you're never going to melt away this like rocky surface. And you do. And the way you do it is just a one-on-one interaction. Hmm. And I think he would argue it's hard to do that in a home with 19 beds. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it's harder to do that when you're taking in such a massive amount of, of youth to have those same one-on-one interactions with kids. Right. Um, you you start you know it's, your story starts with the story of a robbery uh, that turned into a murder. Maybe tell that story. Yeah. So back in 2016, um, January or February of 2016, um, a group of youth at the home um, decided they wanted to get some money, um, and they decided the right way to do it was they were going to call a cab um, to the home, and they were keeping uh, guns in an abandoned house next door. Um, just two years before, DCF had praised the home for installing state-of-the-art camera system. But if you look at depositions the kids gave later, they said that, yes, there were cameras, and they knew how to go on the cameras, and they knew how to walk around and make sure they couldn't be seen. And so they, they could be seen walking out, but then there's a point in time where they walk away and they walk around the cameras, and they go over next door. And so it's two kids living at the home, plus a third who recently had aged out of the home, plus a fourth who lived two or three doors down. And they go to this abandoned house, they call the cab up, Um, it's like nine o'clock at night, and when the cab shows up, um, they point a, uh, I think it was a 22 caliber rifle, into the window, tell him to give them everything he has. They think he's got thousands of dollars, the guy only had 60 bucks on him. Um, They fire, uh, one one of the boys fires the gun, and the guy drives off and he is like slamming on the pedal, driving away, and then he dies. Hmm. Um, and so all four children were convicted of murder related to that incident. Three of them um, pleaded guilty um, to it, the three who were connected to the home. And it's believed that the fourth kid who lived a few doors down, that he was the one who actually pulled the trigger. Um, and during the course of that murder investigation, people involved in that investigation said they were stunned by what they saw at the home. But I also thought it was interesting, one of the lawyers for the kids said she thought the home was very well functioning. Hmm. And this is something that happened throughout the 11 years the home was in existence. One person would look at it and say, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. And Hmm. another person would follow up and say, actually, I think this is a really fantastic home. Two people would look at the same set of facts and come away with different conclusions. And I thought that really highlighted the problem that DCF faced. Hmm. DCF had dozens of complaints of abuse or neglect in the home 
and one person would look and say, this is terrible, especially juvenile probation officers, they would say they were experiencing extreme problems there. And then someone would follow up and say, actually, we think it's fine. Hmm. Um, there was one case where the child ombuds for DCF, whose job is to uh, uh, defend children, to, to look into invest, uh, and investigate allegations. She went there and she was like, I was stunned by what I saw. She wrote this detailed report. And the follow-up email from DCF was, we are aware of the issues and we're working on it. Don't worry. Hmm. Um, and so there was sometimes a feeling that DCF was being dismissive. Um, there was another case where a UNF student showed up one day. And this woman, um, DCF didn't know this about her, but she'd spent like a dozen years as a fraud investigator at Wells Fargo and was changing her career because she wanted to go into child welfare. She was at UNF studying and she spent a day at the home and she wrote a detailed email saying here are all the things i saw and in response to it i don't remember if her email was forwarded or if it was a reply to her or it was a very dismissive saying how could you know in one day what's going on in this home you think you're you know more than we do and it was very like talking down Mm -hmm. saying what would you like us to do because kids weren't going to school she was like the kids are playing video games and watching tv all day and they're not going to school and that strikes me as very wrong they're like what do you want them to drag the kids out of bed? They can't do anything about that. They're stuck with the kids they're given. Hmm. And so that was the dual competing. One person would say the home needs to do something to get the kids in school. And another person would say, well, what should they do? They can't drag the kids to school. Hmm. Um, and so there was, there was always kind of two views of the home. Right. And you had in the story that that, that same year, the murder um, DCF administrators gave the home top marks. 94% rating, praising its work for working with challenging teams and failed to mention the murder, the arrests, or su- subsequent convictions. So that. Yeah, the, the, the language they used in there is that they commended the home, quote, for its efforts to provide youth that have criminal histories and prior DJJ commitments with a stable environment. Um, and so if you were just reading the DCF report, you would say, this is a great home that's working with troubled youth, um, which may be true but you're not getting the context that a murder was just committed by two youth at the home and a third who had aged out. Right. And so one figure and one piece of this story is uh, juvenile judge Suzanne Bass. And you say after the murder, um, Judge Bass, along with probation officers, police, lawyers, advocates, contacted state agencies with an unrelenting fury. Um, Talk about what she said about what was happening there. Yeah, so uh, Judge Bass, um, who did not speak to us um, for the story, she uh, uh, did not agree to an interview, um, which most judges don't. She said that it would be um, um, a conflict. Um, and so, but we did see in transcripts in court, as well as emails uh, between her and state agencies, as, as I put in there, a fury. She was saying, why is this agency, why is this home still open? What do I have to do to get DCF to pay attention? At one point she said, must I contact the secretary directly? Um, I am very concerned at the lack of a response. Right. And, and I think and, it's worth even reading since, you know, as you said, she didn't want to be interviewed. But, um, yeah, you, you, it was some strong, some of your strongest quotes were in the story were from mm-hmm. those records. Um, quote, I am in total disbelief that Panama continues to operate. Um, she had another, you had another one in there. I've. I have had no less than five youth in my courtroom this week with new criminal offenses from Panama House. I continue to be incredulous that this operation is continuing to house boys under the DCS auspices 
as it is an obvious failure at successfully housing and supervising troubled youth. I would even go so far as to say if a boy who goes to Panama doesn't have a criminal arrest yet, he soon will require a criminal arrest after spending spending time at Panama. So those are pretty strong and, statements. And after that email, it was, I think, three or four days later, four or five more kids were arrested at home for a burglary. Um, so it just like was ramping up even more pressure. And DCF was scared. There was a, uh, there were emails back and forth where a regional director was like, all right, what do we say to Judge Bass? We have no intention of pulling the license of this group home. So we need to give her a response. Basically, they were talking about how can we placate her? How can we say we're listening to you, but we're not going to do what you want us to do, which is pull their license. Mm -hmm. um, and DCF really struggled with this because even child advocates I talked to, they said pulling the license was not going to be enough if you don't have an alternative. And, and they're worried now because the group home did eventually have its license pulled and its contract um, uh, was not renewed. And people are worried about what's gonna to happen to these kids because having this home where they felt like there was no oversight over the kids was better than having no home. Mm -hmm. And so if the alternative is the kids are sleeping in offices or the kids are switching homes every single night, that's gonna be even worse in their view than having a home where there was no oversight and there was crimes being committed. Mm -hmm. um, like essentially they're worried that we went from bad to even worse. Mm -hmm. And NDCF, for their part, would not agree to an interview um, and would not answer questions about what happened to the youth living in the home. Hmm. Um, I heard from people who represented youth that they were placed in what's called respite placement, which in the words of a child advocate are worse than the group home hmm. because that's the type of placement where the child is switching homes every single day and they don't have any stability. Hmm. Um, and so... DCF wouldn't confirm that, and they wouldn't um, uh, say that that wasn't true either. Um, they said that they were not going to talk about the uh, youth and what happened to them. Yeah, you, you, you know, one of the questions as you're reading this is, you know, how did it stay open? And then you point out it's also murky how it closed. Yeah. Um, so we don't really know what led to that playing out. Yeah, I think that the, the number one lesson here is that there is a lot of bureaucracy in the system. Um, as I said at the beginning, you've got DCF, you've got a lead agency, you've got case management organizations, you've got guardians ad litem, you've got juvenile probation officers, you've got the individual group home that's subcontracted, all these layers. And if it's confusing for me as a reporter who spent months looking into this, imagine how confusing it is to the teenager who's been arrested, who's gone through juvenile court and is now placed here. Um, it's even more confusing. And that same level of bureaucracy that makes it confusing for the child also made it hard for DCF to monitor the home. Hmm. DCF would say, for example, um, you don't have compliant service plans. And then the group home would say, well, that's the fault of the case management organization, which it very well may be. But because of the bureaucracy, it's hard to know who's at fault there. Mm -hmm. And so DCF would say, like, this happened and we don't know who's at fault. Hmm. Um, or there would be times, um, there was an example early on, like 2011 or 2012, where they sent a kid on a bus to go home to visit his family and uh, never notified his caseworker and didn't know that that was not allowed because hmm. the kid told them that it was allowed. And DCF ended up concluding, we actually fault the caseworker, saying the caseworker should have been in better communication with the youth as opposed to Panama. I don't know who's right there, but Panama then was able to say it's the fault of them. 
And so there's a lot of bureaucracy. And that same level of bureaucracy, I asked DCF why did the group home close? They said because Family Support Services wanted it closed. I asked Hmm. FSS why it closed. They said because DCF wanted it closed. And neither of them would explain why they were both pointing fingers at the other. But thanks to the bureaucracy, they can do so kind of with impunity. Um, They're able to blame everyone but themselves. And that's the lesson here. Panama won't accept blame. DCF won't accept blame. FSS won't accept blame. DJJ won't accept blame. Nobody's going to accept blame. And so they all are able to say it's some other cog in the machine and nobody's able to get final answers because they're all obfuscating. Hmm. Well, that kind of is a natural lead into where I was going to take you next was um, I found Willie Green to be an interesting figure in the story. And, and I was one of the quotes kind of kind of gets at that. This is what you wrote, what Andrew wrote. Um, he blamed the kids. He blamed the neighborhood. He blamed the police. He blamed judges. He blamed the school district. He blamed state laws. He blamed state ag- agencies. And yes, he said, maybe he blamed himself. Everyone, he said, should share the blame. That, that was a pretty powerful paragraph in, in, the, in the story. Um, kind of gets to what you were just talking about. So yeah, tell me about what your impressions were of Willie Grain and, um, you know, you've kind of touched on it a little bit that the two sides of this equation and how he talked about, um, yes, these things were happening, but if they were happening at individual homes, people, you know, if they're all separated in 19 different kids in 19 different places, maybe people wouldn't notice. But when it's all under one roof, yeah, um, people are going to notice. Yeah, I and I, I think he makes valid points. I also think he... He did not go into this, I don't think, to get wealthy. I don't think he went in this with, like there are a lot easier ways to make good money. Um, he started out making 50,000. By the end, he was making about 100,000, um, which is a lot, but not an obscene amount. Um, and I think he was genuine that he did want better for the kids. I also think he wasn't necessarily prepared for what was happening. And I think that's true for also a lot of foster families. Um, My own family has experience with taking in foster youth um, and it's really challenging. And if these 19 kids were dispersed, I think it would just be 19 foster families um, all struggling with this. And I don't know that it would be better. Um, In some ways like these youth, you need specially trained, really intensive focus And I don't know that that was happening. And I think that we're probably seeing a little bit of a shift in the state away from group homes that are so big that they have 19 kids. Um, I think Sale Future in St. Petersburg does show with less kids, you can have more of a focus on the individual kids' outcomes. Um, But I don't think, um, I did not come away with this and see that there was overwhelming evidence that Willie Green should should have 100% of the blame. Hmm. I think that his points about case management organizations were true. And the problem there is there are dozens of case management organizations. One day he'd have you know CHS in Jacksonville. One day he would have um, a place in Polk County. One day he'd have a place in Seminole County. Um, all these case management organizations across the state who he would say were at fault, um, and there's so many of them that it's kind of dispersing the blame. The hmm. only single agency that dealt with this was was his and i think he's right that he got more of the blame probably than he deserved and for me as a reporter and as a member of the community that makes me a little concerned that the solution that the state sees is just let's shut this down and everything is fixed right which i don't um from everything i saw here i don't think that's true 
I think that there needs to be a, a reconsideration of how does the state handle youth who have done bad things? Like these youth who are in this home, a lot of them have done bad things, whether it's violence, whether it is drugs, whether it's just the effects of growing up in trauma. Um, some of these kids um, said they asked to go to Panama Youth Services when I talked to them um, because um, it was better than home for them. Hmm. But then they would get there and they would never spend time at Panama. It was just a, a free reign. There hmm. was no one making sure they stayed at home. And so one kid, Jason um, Aarons, he lost his foot um, on a train. Um, he was running home uh, to get to Panama before a curfew. And so he hopped on a train to try to cross the tracks. That There was a train going and he didn't want to wait for it to be done. So he hops on the train and slices his leg off. Um, hmm. And when I talked to him, he said, the reason I was out there, and he was out there drinking. Um, and so I, when DCF looks at this report and they try to determine who's to blame, they say, so you have a kid who is drinking, who is out past, like out, even though staff had told him don't leave the home. So they viewed it as staff did what they could and he left. His view was, yeah, but they didn't do anything for me there. There was nothing to do back at the home. There were no activities. Mm. There was nothing to engage me. So of course I left. And like, also I was tra traumatized and I was trying to escape and I was just trying to like, you know, run away and, and have some freedom. Um, and so his view was they could have done more, um, but it's still difficult. You know, how do you deal with a child like that where when he was talking to me about what he went through with his dad and with his mom growing up and that he asked to go back to Panama, um, he had gone to Panama, left, and then asked to go back at the time that the, the foot incident happened. Hmm. And from his perspective, it was better than being home. Um, so like for someone like that, it's hard to know what more should you do, but I do believe the state needs to reckon with that and needs to, to reconsider. Right, and I think that's what you captured so well, all these, you know, it's, it's a very complex story, and I think that's, you know, we have the headline, Jacksonville Home for Teen Delinquents Shut Down After Decade of Criticism, 1,800 Police Calls, which gets your attention and explains, you know, this is, but it's obviously much more than that, and I think you touched, he was trying to get home for curfew out of the 1,800 calls, a lot of them were that, mm -hmm. and yeah, so about a third of, so police, I got all the police calls for service and there were 1,800 of them. About a third of them were for curfew, um, which is a lot. Um, right. You know, uh, that's a lot of times police are coming there. And again, Willie Green would say he was doing the right thing. He was calling the police every time youth would, would be out past curfew. The problem that juvenile probation officers would point out is police would show up and they'd ask, when was the last time you saw the youth? And people didn't know. Like they weren't tracking, oh, this kid is, is leaving the house. It was just, okay, it's, you know, 11 p.m., um, which kids are here? Okay, so these kids aren't here, so let's call the police and hmm. report that. Um, and so, again, I see both sides. He was being responsible in reporting kids who were out. Um, on the other hand, was he being as responsible as he should have been or his staff when they weren't keeping track of where kids were going? Because his view was, I can't force a kid to stay. I can't physically restrain them. But... Are you even talking to the kid? Are you asking the kid, hey, where are you going? Are you setting up activities, events, things that they can be doing in the home to, to encourage them to stay? Um, because I think a lot of parents would say they don't physically restrain their kids, but they're still able to keep them at home. Right. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the lingering bottom line question is not just this one place, but uh, what happened to those kids and what do we do in the future 
Yeah. Um, so do you plan to, do you think this, this will lead to follow-ups? I mean, I would like to know what happened to those kids. I know it's, it's obviously difficult to answer that question. So, so I've, I've already heard from um, at least one person um, who was involved in um, investigating the home along the way who um, has shared um, uh, some of the contacts this person has had, um, which just further shows, I think, DCF um, ignoring some of the problems that happened there. Um, I still am trying to find out what what is the new state of affairs for kids who are uh, crossover kids with DJJ and DCF, um, and I don't know. Um, so I do hope to do some follow-ups once I can get some answers. Right. Um, anything I haven't asked you about? Uh, no, I think you got everything. <laughs> um, so everybody, story will be, it's online already, mm-hmm. so go ahead and read it on jacksville.com, and it'll be in Sunday's edition of the Times Union. So That's right. check it out there in print. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew.